When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Network. I'm your host of Free Will and Rob Kelly, and we have a new guest to welcome to the show, Ben Caldwell. Ben, glad to have you here. Oh, thanks, Rob. Glad, glad to be here. Now, uh, before we get into the song in question, which is A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall from Bob's 1963 album, The Free Will and Bob Dylan, our first song from this album that we've gotten to on the show, which is unbelievable. Uh, now, you are how old? I'm 19 years old. Okay, so I have been listening to Bob Dylan longer than you've been alive. <laughs> so um, it's, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to marinate in that for a second. How did you find your way to, to Bob Dylan? I mean, there are probably not a lot of 19-year-olds that are really into Bob Dylan. So how did you do it? That's that's true, and um, it ca- it came about actually when I was about thirteen. Uh, I was thirteen year old me was sucking in all music that I can because I wanted to fit in, and um, believe it or not, fitting in with Bob Dylan was because I uh, the theater company I was with at the time a lot of the older uh, cast members and older directors were big fans of Bob Dylan, and one day I remember we were setting up for a show and they were playing. Uh, a Bob Dylan album, I think it was just one of the greatest hits, and I was listening, and I went, hey, this is, I've never heard of this stuff before, and the instant they told me it was Bob Dylan, I was like, well, I guess I have to like Bob Dylan now, and uh, so I went in to look more and more into it, and it turned out that I genuinely liked Bob Dylan, hmm. uh, so believe it or not, a kid that was, you know, a 19-year-old kid discovered Bob Dylan when he was 13, and uh, wasn't born in the 60s, so... <laughs> Uh, I'm afraid to ask this question because I, I'm afraid of the answer. But when you say older members of the theater group, like what, what age are you talking about when you're calling them older? <laughs> they actually they actually weren't that much older. They're um, about 18 years older than me. Um, okay, 18, right, 18, okay. 18 to 20 years older than I was. So they were in their 20s to 30s. Okay. Um, so not not exponentially older. <laughs> okay. Now, I mean, were they, I'm kind of curious about this, like, were they trying to sell you on it, or were they just playing it around you, and you oh, kind of felt like you wanted to listen to it, too? Were they actively trying to, like, recruit you? Was it, like, a weird cult or something? Like, what's going well, on? <laughs> well, once once I mentioned that I had no idea who Bob Dylan was, instantly, it, it was almost as if they were like, well, now we have to teach him who Bob <laughs> Dylan was. And, um, and I sucked that in so fast. Because I was like, "Wow, yes, I would love to learn more about Bob Dylan," um, and so it was a little bit of both. More of just I was taking it in, and once they found out that I was taking it in, they were like, "Well, let's give her more to take in." So there's a lot. There's a lot to take in. What was the uh, like? What were the first couple albums that you got that you got on your own that you really hooked into? Uh, the first one I got was actually uh, I got a CD for Christmas. I got the Dylan CD. Um, so it was just the, uh, multitude of, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then when I started digging more into it, the first album, uh, I actually got for myself was bringing it all back home. Good one. Good one to start with. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Now, how much do you, have you gotten them all at this point? I'm really kind of curious because I just, 
I don't know, I don't really have too many people on the show that are like that kind of new to it, and I'm sort of fascinated. Like, so do you have all of it, or do you have like a lot of it, or like what other albums have you picked up? I'm just really, curious. I have a decent amount, but I'm not nearly there yet. Okay. Um, I my way of attracting getting albums is starting early and building from there. Um, so I have a lot of the early stuff. I think I have all the way up until. Um, so I guess maybe not a lot of the early stuff, um, but I've got up until Blood on the Tracks, and then I've got a period of just random ones uh, in between, um, all the way up, and then I have more of the recent ones, like Tempest was one of the uh, more recent ones that I got, um, but of course that's one of the more recent ones, so it doesn't, it's not as surprising to have that's that good. one, yeah. so... Have you had a chance to see him live yet? Do you have any interest in seeing him live? I have. I'm I'm skeptical about seeing him live, but I have very deep interest in wanting to see him live. <laughs> um, I missed an opportunity to go see him in Milwaukee this summer. Um, I was very close to going, and schedule just didn't work out. Um, but I have. I know that if I see him, I'll enjoy the music. But at the same time, I know. Bob Dylan Live is Bob Dylan Live, and I have no idea what I'm going to get myself into. <laughs> that is true. That's absolutely true. So <laughs> proceed with caution. Yeah. Uh, I will give you some advice. Uh, if you haven't picked up the Dylan and the Dead live album yet, uh, don't bother. You can just skip that one. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> be perfectly fine with that one. <laughs> so, uh, well, excellent. This is great. So we're, I guess, as I said, we're here to talk about A Hard Rains Are Going to Fall from 1963's The Free Will and Bob Dylan. Now, to give people a little bit of context, in terms of uh, like where Bob was when he when he did this album and did this song, he had recorded with Columbia Records when he was only about 19 years old, and he was signed by John Hammond, the famous uh, record producer John Hammond. And most people at Columbia Records thought Bob Dylan was like, who is this kid? You know, mm-hmm. and just thought he was terrible, and and really thought this was a, a mistake. But John Hammond had had a, a you know a stellar reputation as a talent finder. And so they kind of just let him have his way. They actually called Bob Dylan Hammond's Folly uh, because they thought it was such a waste of time. And so Dylan records a first album, which is mostly covers with a couple of originals thrown in. And it really doesn't register. It it sells Mm -hmm. a couple of thousand copies and uh, it it just sort of disappears. And other people at Columbia Records are thinking, well, this is it. This this kid's going to not do anything. So uh, in the meantime, then, uh, you know, a lot of time passes and it becomes clear to the young Bob Dylan that uh, if he's going to record another album, he's got to make this one count. This one has this can't be another toss off. Not that the first one was tossed off, but this this one really has to make an impact. And boy, howdy, uh, did this one make an impact? Because uh, in the meantime, he recorded he wrote and recorded songs like Blown in the Wind, Masters of War. Girl from the North Country, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, and A Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall, among others. I mean, this album is the beginning of mm-hmm. the guy that we have come to know, Bob Dylan. I mean, this is, this, this is an album he has um, always returned to in concert. We're talking 50 years later, 55 years later. Uh, he's still singing songs from it. These are songs that virtually everyone knows, but Blown in the Wind became part of the culture. And so he really landed with this album and and you know on an album full of classic songs uh, i would argue a hard rain a gonna fall is is one of the most classicest really because it is just so beautiful so powerful uh the performance is great the lyrics are great it is based on an old traditional ballad known uh, called the lord randall 
yep. which is asks a series of questions. It's sort of um, like a call and response, asking this and then giving the question. So it opens up with uh, just Bob singing. It's an acoustic song, of course, and it starts with, Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? Oh, where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of 12 misty mountains. I've walked and I've crawled on six crooked highways. I've stepped in the middle of seven sad forests. I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans. I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rains are going to fall. And the idea behind this song was that Dylan wanted to have every line in the song, in his mind, be the beginning of a potential other song. And so this thing is just this cascade of images and worlds that really could lead you down all these different lines, but that he keeps barreling through into the next thing. And it's, it's just an amazing song. Now, what was this one that really spoke to you when you first heard it? This was absolutely uh, a song that spoke to me. Uh, when I first heard it, it just... The dark, not necessarily dark imagery, but just the imagery all throughout it, um, just really, really pulled pulled at what I was listening to. Uh, certain certain lines stood out to me, like hearing a clown who cried in the alley, a poet who died in the gutter. Those two I know are right by each other, and it was images like that are just. It's almost, and I guess it was more of the art sort of image behind it, as if, um, with the poet who was crying in the gutter, as if, oh, you know, artists, you know. No one's appreciating the art that he's been making um, or the clown that's crying in the alley. It's like these are images of people that are usually seen as happy and, and go lucky. And so hearing someone talk about, you know, uh, a clown that has, you know, a painted smile on to see that see that frown or hear that crying is is definitely an image that stood out when I first heard it. Um, and there's, like I said, a multitude of other other images throughout the song as well. So it's it's a big stepping stone into uh, what I believe is Dylan's what an unleashing of these images and just words in general that really really spell out uh, what he builds into being later on. Yeah, I mean, for a song that runs seven minutes and it has no, it doesn't have any sort of bridge. It's just this series of these four sets of or five sets of lyrics that just go very long. The song doesn't in my opinion, uh, wear out its welcome. I mean, it's, you, you sort of, it, you feel like you're w walking along the, the, with this guy. Mm -hmm. You're just seeing all these random, almost like a kaleidoscope of, of imagery. And again, in, in lesser hands, it could be kind of tiresome. But to me, this is, it, it draws you in more each time. And he continues on. He says, uh, where have you, you know, every verse opens up with the blue-eyed sun. Mm -hmm. And then he says, I know, I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it, which is, Horrific. I mm -hmm. saw a highway of highway of diamonds with nobody on it. I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping. I saw a room full of men with their hammers a bleeding. I saw a white ladder all covered with water. I saw ten thousand talkers whose tongues were all broken. I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children. And he goes, "It's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain's going to fall." I mean, again, it's this song has become famous as. Uh, Dylan's Cuban Missile Crisis song because people have taken the hard rain's going to fall to be uh, a nuclear rain. And uh, Dylan himself spoke to an interviewer, I think Nat Hentoff, I believe, was the interviewer mm -hmm. who was a big promoter of Dylan early on. And he sort of told Nat Hentoff that this was his Cuban Missile Crisis song, which is complete bullshit. Uh, yeah. Because, as everyone knows, Bob Dylan wrote this in the summer of 1963, and in fact, two months before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he played it live 
in September of 1963 mm-hmm. at the Cafe. So Bob was already learning to burnish his own legend uh, by telling Nat Hentoff, "Oh, I write this. I wrote this as the Cuban Missile Crisis song." <laughs> you know, but that was that was what young Bob Dylan was all about. But it, it's and then later on he. Later on in life, he's gone on to say, well, no, it's not specifically about a nuclear rain. It's a hard rain of, of, of any of any making mm-hmm. of your own life, your own difficulties. Whatever you choose to take it is, that's the hard rain that's going to fall on you. And that's what this is. And that, to me, it works as a song, as a response to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I, I wasn't alive back then. I can't imagine what that had to be like to live under that sort of direct threat. Uh, and then to hear this song, you could I could imagine that hearing this song after going through that experience would be incredibly powerful. And in your mind, you would say, well, that's what this song is about to me. Mm-hmm. You may not have written it for that, but this is what it is to me. But it's it's uh, it, even if it's not about a nuclear rain, to me, it, it still retains all the power that it that it ha- has inherently when he wrote it. Absolutely, and what what I love about it is uh, as you as you were saying, it's a very Dylan thing to do, where it's. It could, if this is what it is to you, then it could be about the missile crisis. But someone like myself, you know, years later listening to it, it could be something completely different. And I think that's something that is really great about the the song in general is it has so many, it can be taken in so many ways and shapes and forms. I guess it just depends on when you're listening to it and and how you take it in. Yeah, um, I can't imagine what this, I mean, not that Dylan ever got a lot of radio play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can't imagine what a song like this must have sounded like if you heard it on the radio in 1963 when, you know, the Beatles were just showing up. But, I mean, pop music was still mostly the kind of bubblegum stuff. Uh, Elvis had faded a bit and, you would, you know, the, 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 the radio charts had been taken over by a lot of pop acts. And then mm-hmm. you, ever, have you, you ever have this guy with this very spare accompaniment singing I'll Walk to the Depths of the Deepest Dark Forest, where the people are many and their hands are all empty, where the pellets of poison are flooding their waters, where the home in the valley meets the damp, dirty prison, where the executioner's face is always well hidden, where hunger is ugly, where souls are forgotten, where black is the color, where none is the number. And then, you know, I mean, that's probably the darkest part of the song, but then he ends it with I'll tell it and think it and speak it and breathe it, and reflect from the mountain so all souls can see it. And then I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking. But I'll know my song well before I start singing. It's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rains are going to fall. And I love how it ends on that kind of upbeat note of the idea of it's like uh, I'm going to sing my song. Despite all of the hardships that I'm facing and the fact that you're facing, I'm going to... I'm going to reflect it from the mountain so all souls can see it, which is what he's doing. I'm, I'm singing this to you. I'm trying to communicate something to you. And so it has this wonderfully upbeat ending, despite the sort of, you know, tour of horrors he's just taken you through. Absolutely. And uh, there's that line about being handed a rainbow. I met a young girl. She gave yes. me a rainbow. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's a good spark into what he was it what he goes on to say in that last line as you covered uh is it was almost you know without with all this going on you know there's a sense of hope within that that one that one girl that gave him a rainbow into him proclaiming that no matter what's going on in this world i'm going to keep singing his song whether that be um one of joy or one of you know of predominantly joy i would assume um regardless of what's going on in the world. Yeah, 
It's a, and it's a, it's a song that he himself has, I guess, always had some sort of connection to. He has played it 457 times. Now, when you think about that, that's over a 55-year period. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a lot. Uh, in fact, he just played it two months ago, uh, June of 2017, which was a show in Dover, Delaware, that I could have gone to because that's not far from here, but I didn't get a chance uh, to do it, unfortunately. But so it's it's something that, you know, he obviously isn't, uh, it's not something that he, he pulls out in concert a lot, maybe because it's so word heavy. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it is seven minutes uh, and it, it, you know, maybe it just sort of eats up his brain a little bit in terms of how many lyrics he's got to remember because it's, <laughs> because it doesn't have a narrative it's probably harder to remember. I mean, it's probably a little easier to remember a story song than it is this, which is just kind of flitting from thing to thing. But he's never he's never abandoned it. And in fact, um, there is a version from the mid-70s that he did as part of the Rolling Thunder Review, which is like this big rave up, uh, which is, it's funny to hear it done in such an upbeat style uh, where it's almost done as like a, like, I don't want to say a party song, but you he's got backing singers on the chorus and stuff like that. And it just seems such a strange song to hear in, in that context. And then in the 2000s, he re-recorded it as a benefit for an organization that is uh, devoted to making sure people have clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. And so on that version, he it's uh, almost, you'll, you'll hear a little bit of it at the end of the episode, it's almost peppy. And uh, he cuts it down to about four minutes, that version. But it's that's another surreal one to hear this kind of upbeat pep beat set to this kind of dark song. And then you hear him actually hear his voice come in in the end, talk about that he hopes that everyone can have clean drinking water in this world. So it's it's a song that, um, like a lot of Dylan songs, have a continuing use. You know, you can keep finding new things to, to use it for. And, you know, I don't want to tell... Uh, Sony Music or Columbia Records had to, had to do their <laughs> business, but I have to think like you know, wouldn't you? Couldn't you release a uh, iTunes Live version of this somewhere and send all the benefits to uh, for Hurricane Harvey relief? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Dylan Dylan has a song for every occasion uh, where you can find something and, and use it, and so you know, I can't help but think every time you see any sort of story about you know a, a tremendous weather event, which of course we're having more and more often. Uh, this song is one of the ones that occurs to me, and if, if, even if it is taking it you know, very literally. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I'm glad you brought up that he has a song for almost every event, because uh, one of the interpretations of this song that I was I was talking to a friend about when I first um, showed them this song, uh, they thought rain. Uh, was rain as in the R-E-I-G-N rain, uh, as in like someone ruling versus actual physical rain. Um, And I thought that was interesting because if you look at the lyrics as well, um, it could be about a terrible place to live in that perhaps has a a tyrannical feel to it. And this is just a reflection of people's oppression. Uh, You know, I've never really thought of that because I guess I've always known that the song was rain, but, but that's a completely valid interpretation of it. I like, in fact, I like that a lot because Dylan's songs frequently do take place in this sort of weird nether region that seems to not be the future, but not quite the past. Uh, there seems to be, it's maybe sort of post-apocalyptic, but maybe Mm -hmm. not really. And this is definitely that. I mean, you could picture a guy wandering some sort of road that, uh, is, is, you know, has been destroyed or is in, surrounded by wreckage and he's seeing all these crazy things going on and all you know i mean again the, the idea of the uh the baby surrounded by with wild wolves all around it that's a that's pretty dark you know i mean you really picture that well that's not a good t- 
turn of events if there are innocent babies laying around where threatened by animals. You know, it's mm -hmm. pretty pretty amazing. So that's a that's a really interesting interpretation. Um, uh, kudos to your friend for thinking thinking of it like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there are a lot of other interpretations that it could go into, uh, just based off of the words and the uh, the storyline. Uh, something that I noticed was if you look at each almost stanza, um, bit by bit, whether it be what did you, where have you been, to what did you see, to what did you hear. If you break it down, it's almost as if each line is compatible. For example, the I've stumbled on the side of 12 misty mountains. Well, on that mountain, he saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it. He heard the sound of thunder roaring out a warning. Uh, and that's where he met a child besides a young pony, besides a dead pony. And that goes forward for I've walked and crawled on six crooked highways. And then he goes and says, I saw a highway of diamonds uh, with nobody on it. And that kind of trend almost continues throughout the song. Uh, and I thought that was also an interesting way to take a look at it. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny when you think when you think that the, the opening version, opening lines of every stanza, it is the singer is talking to someone else. I mean, it's almost like he's getting a report. You know, who did you meet, my blue-eyed son? Mm -hmm. Who did you meet, my darling? And then we're sort of shifting of, well, the person who's saying I met, that's the blue-eyed son, presumably reporting back to the person who you know is asking, well, what did you see? Uh, so I mean, it's. It, one of the other things I, I think about when I, when I read this song is uh, Dylan apparently was sort of back in the when he was in the early 60s and he was in New York and he was making a name for himself. He liked to brag. Well, he liked to brag a lot, but he liked to brag specifically <laughs> that he wrote five songs before breakfast. That was his big, you know, oh, I'm cranking these songs out. And, you know, obviously that's, that's meant to, again, to burnish his own legend a little bit and not to at all, at all, undercut the work it takes to write a song, any song, let alone even a good one, let alone a classic one. But I read a song like this with these lyrics, and I have to think, this is not a song I think that you can labor on to get it right. I think this is a song that probably comes into your head almost fully formed like a bolt of lightning, mm -hmm. and you just jot it down. Because it doesn't... The, the levels of inspiration, I think, that this song reveals i just can't picture you sitting there laboring over you know well i met a young child beside a dead beside a dead what horse beside a dead cow beside a dead pig what rhymes with pig no, like, oh, yeah, no, a dead pony there you go like to me <laughs> this song can't be written like that this this seems like something that probably appear, appeared in his brain one day and he just jotted it down as best he could yes and and i mean uh, I was reading somewhere that there were extremely small changes, um, things like 12 Misty Mountains, something about being Purple Mountains originally. and um, But these these were changes that didn't, you know, affect the whole song where he must, like you were saying, it's not like he sat there going, how can I, what rhymes with, po what will rhyme well with Pony? Yeah. Um, but no, I, I completely agree that this definitely had to, almost as if he had this idea and just, kept going for it yeah. and would, wouldn't stop until at the end where he'd go back and maybe take a look. But I, I agree completely. Yeah, it's a song that he has, uh, you know, Dylan has never been very uh, sacrosanct about his own songs in terms of fussing with them lyrically. But this is a song that has retained its basic 
you know, his original lyrics. Uh, mm-hmm. He's never really messed with it. And when you consider how dense it is, uh, there's a million opportunities f- uh, here for him to mess with the words, but he really hasn't. So I think he probably figured, you know what, I got it. And apparently it was recorded in one take uh, under the under the producer, John Hammond. Like, he just banged it out and did it. Mm-hmm. There was no alternate takes, no rough starts. He just did it, and boom, and there it's on the record, and there it was for all to see. And so once it landed on Freewheel and alongside all these other songs, and it says something about the quality of the, the Freewheel and album, that this song doesn't dominate. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that, again, you've got Blown in the Wind and Girl from the North Country and Don't Think Twice It's All Right and Masters of War. I mean, this is an album of peerless songs. And so this this song uh, fits, you know, it's, it's of a piece with the album. It's not like it's uh, other albums that are a little top-heavy or stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, it's this is, this is really one of the songs that once he unveiled it, People, you know, in the Greenwich Village area and people in the folk scene just were like, holy crap, this kid, you know, this is just amazing. And this is, you know, this is one of the songs that man's reputation sits on it and it's well-deserved. I think it's a brilliant song. And like I said, even though it's very dark, I don't find it to be depressing. Uh, it's not like, uh, the, you know, on uh, the ballad, it's not like the Ballad of Hollis Brown, which is to me this no. unending song about death that I have can only really get through every couple of times. This song is is kind of fun to listen to. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. It's almost uh, it's almost as if I'm just a, taking in and observing something. I don't feel like I have that emotional connection with, with Hollis Brown where it's like, well, oh, that's dark, where this is more of like, oh, that's crafted really well. Mm-hmm. Like that, those words go really well together. Um, then I like how you mentioned how this was almost in the scene he was in, where this was a song that really kind of broke through like, oh, well, Bob Dylan can, wow, he's really, really doing something here, uh, specific, specifically lyrically. Because if you look at how these lyrics are set up and so cra- well-crafted, and you move forward in the timeline, and you get to something like Subterranean Homesick Blues, where I, I question almost the same as was he sitting there the whole time or did he have this idea of just a, an onslaught of words to come out um, almost poetically? Yeah. Yeah. Some of these songs, they, they really do feel like it's the, the, the hand of God coming down and, and touching you. Cause I don't know how you craft something like this. You know, I just don't know how you do it. And it's funny because mm-hmm. Dylan himself has been very dismissive of some of his songs. And I think that's to kind of throw people off the scent. I mean, he famously was asked once around this time, you know, uh, why did he write Times They Are Changing? And he said, oh, I, I did it because I knew, you know, the folk movement would love it. I, I did it. I almost <laughs> wrote it as like a jingle. And, I mean, to, some people found that very offensive, but I think that was Bob just kind of wanting to kind of keep people at a distance. But I think you hear a song like this and you say, this is not a guy faking it. This is not a guy that's that's putting on a pose. This is a real thing. This is a, a real emotion he's trying to convey in, in the moment. And, you know, uh, I read an article once where, where someone said uh, Dylan uh, re- referred to Dylan as uh, as ever magnetic North. And mm-hmm. I feel like this is one of those songs. The fact that he wrote this, I mean, if he had written this after the Cuban Missile Crisis, it would still be brilliant. But the fact that he wrote it before uh, suggests that Bob Dylan's wiring is just simply tapped into something uh, that the rest of us are not. I mean, that's what makes him Bob Dylan, of course. Is that, I mean, there are, I can think of hundreds of examples of lyrics that when I heard them, I kind of go, I don't know what that is exactly. And then a month later, some event will happen. And Mm -hmm. I'll go, well, that's what it means. That's what it means. I mean, he didn't, when he wrote it, it didn't mean that, but it means that now. 
uh, I think about, not to get too far off topic, but I think about um, the song Lonesome Day Blues on Love and Theft, which of course was released on 9-11, 2001. Mm-hmm. There's a line in that song about my, my brother was killed in the war. And you think, you know, well, what, what, when he wrote it, what, what, what war is yeah. my brother being killed in? And then what, we're, then we were at war a month later. You know, and you're like, well, now we know what war we're talking about. You know, right? So it's that kind of thing that Dylan just seems to have that ability, and this is this is one of the great examples of that. So yeah, it's it's a tremendous song, and I'm I'm really glad that you uh, mentioned you want to talk about it because a we haven't gotten to anything from Freewheeling, which is ridiculous. We're 50 episodes in, <laughs> we've gotten to the Freewheeling album, but also it's just it's just a deep, deep, rich song. Yep, absolutely, and I think uh, as you're saying, with almost how he has this um, way of not not telling what's going to come, but just connecting with what comes, uh, what comes next, almost as if uh, his songwriting exists in that world that you were saying earlier, isn't really, you know, present, past, future. It just kind of is there and is applicable almost across the whole spectrum. And it just so happens that when it, like in that example, when it pops up, it just so happens to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, but at the same time, there's something something pretty spectacular about it yeah it's it's a it's a it's a masterpiece of song it's one of his great songs even though it wasn't particularly a hit but it's a it's a great song and you can of course get the original version on his album the free wheel and bob dylan it's been put on several greatest hits collections there are alternate live versions of it on various bootleg series compilations and it was on the dylan uh, best of uh, cd which you which you talked about earlier so it's correct it's, it's, yeah it's all over the place and of course it's been covered uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of times. I mean, covering Bob Dylan's a whole cottage industry by itself. Um, so there's a. It's a. If you haven't listened to it, if you haven't heard it, yet, go out and, and try any of the many versions. Uh, it's it's a tremendous song. So um, I think that's going to do it for Hard Rain's Going to Fall. Ben, um, first of all, thank you so much for reaching out and wanting to come on to do the show. I love hearing from new Dylan fans. And just something else I, I want to mention. I am really thrilled to hear that someone. Um, I'm going to feel really old here. But uh, I'm really thrilled that someone of your age discovered Bob Dylan and likes it as much as you do. I think that's that's great. I think that's the, one of the things that's going to give Bob Dylan that that immortality uh, that people uh, as young as you are are into him and are able to sort of talk about him conversantly and as well as you are, which is I, I think it's just amazing. And I hope you do get to see him because from what I've read of, of Bob, Bob loves seeing younger people in his crowds. He loves seeing diverse groups of people. So I mm-hmm. think if he saw someone your age, he would just be thrilled at that. So I hope you get the chance to see him sometime. Absolutely. I think it would be, I think it would be an incredible show to see. Yeah. It, I will tell you, the first time I ever saw him live, um, it, as much as the show itself was, you know, whatever it was, hit or miss or whatever, the, the part I didn't get over is that I'm in the same room with this guy. That, absolutely, the fact that you can you can physically see him there in itself is a reward. Yeah, I'm physically in the same space as this guy, the guy that stood next to Martin Luther King and sang, and the guy that you know met with these presidents, and the guy that did this and that. I'm physically in the same space. That is a that that, that is I never get over it. I've seen him twenty times, and I've never really gotten over. It, but that first one was was just like a real mind bender. So, uh, but anyway, thank you so much for coming on. I, I really appreciate it, and I enjoyed talking to you. No, thank thank you for having me, and I'm I'm excited to go on and spread Bob Dylan to the to the youth to come to coming forward. <laughs> That's great. We'll start a cult. Uh, we'll have, uh, <laughs> so, of course, everybody, if you want to listen to back episodes of the show, find it on the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. 
and we can talk about Bob Dylan stuff over on Twitter, which in the, and the, uh, the show's address is uh, at pod underscore Dylan. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, until next week, we will see you then. Bye. Beside a dead pony, I met a white man who walked a black dog. I met a young woman whose body was burning. I met a young girl, she gave me a rainbow. I met one man who was wounded in love. I met another man who was wounded in hatred And it's hard, it's hard, it's hard It's hard, it's hard rains are gonna fall What do you do now, my blue eyes?